What happens when we say we don't have the answer? You might, and we're trusting you to work towards an answer. It doesn't have to be a hard answer, but just kind of get us closer to an answer. Hello, and welcome to AI, also known as Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and today I am with Bahia Ramos, who is the Director of Arts for the Wallace Foundation. Yes. Hello, welcome. Thank you, Barbara. It's lovely to be here. So what does it mean to be Director of Arts at the Wallace Foundation? Ooh, that's a great question. It means that I am the steward for all the arts grant making on behalf of the foundation. We are founded by Lila and DeWitt Wallace, who created Reader's Digest. Our interests are in two focus areas, education, which was kind of DeWitt's passion, and the arts, which was Lila's passion. She has a mantra that the arts belong to everyone. And so there's a portfolio of funds at the foundation, which we invest in arts organizations across the country. And I'm responsible for developing and implementing initiatives that are cultivated by our research questions and seek to sustain the vitality of arts within the country. You actually have a grant that you call Building Audiences for Sustainability. Mm -hmm. There's three things that I wanted to explore in in that title. I wanted to explore what building, (laughs) I wanted to explore audiences, and I wanted to explore sustainability. Great, great, great. That's what we're doing as well. So Wallace, unlike other grant makers, develops initiatives as its operating principle. We develop what we think are kind of high leverage knowledge gaps. We look out into the field and say, what's a question we could ask that if we researched and found an answer to would really provide true benefits to the field. And so from like an arts perspective, audience has been at the forefront of Wallace's kind of gaze for at least a decade. We've been considering this notion of the relationship between people and the arts. And building audiences is really the the evolution of a former initiative we had called the Excellence Awards, which just looked at like, how do arts organizations build relationships with community? How do they develop a sense for target audiences and reshape their organizations in order to meet the needs of the general audience or target audience? building audiences for sustainability. The building is about how do we continue to build new people, right? And then audiences with this initiative, which is a five-year initiative with 25 organizations. We're not just talking about kind of current audiences, but how do we build new audiences? How do we bring new people into our doors? And the sustainability part is about the the age-old question of cost. Does this have any overall impact on the financial health of an organization? So that's so interesting because I think maybe the assumption is that if you expand your audience, you're going to expand your revenue streams. Right. You're going to expand your support in the community. Right. And that would be great if every human were the same and the cost of doing something remained the same over time. Right. And so one of the one of the issues we face is that the consumption of culture has changed over time. You know, when we thought, oh, if you just get one person in, one person out, they'll spend the same, they'll come with the same frequency, they'll be subscribers, my cost will remain flat for the next 20 years for putting on a show or doing an opera, and that none of these things are true, right? We have human behavior has changed the consideration of what is culture has changed over time for for in like really positive ways, right? And I'm not knocking any of this, but the consumption of culture and the notion of what culture means to a person has changed in the way
way they participate in culture. 25 years ago, one might not say that going to a street fair was culture. Now we say that's culture. We didn't have technology 25 years ago. Netflix wasn't competing for our brains and our attention spans. And so alongside that, you know, if you take the example of a symphony, the cost of a symphony is always predicated on like the fact that you need 102, 106 people to perform that symphony. You can't do it with five people. So the efficiency arts, like the culture as an efficient model, efficient practice hasn't changed over time, right? And I'm expressly talking about kind of benchmark arts. And so you're left with this idea that one in, one out actually doesn't it doesn't work anymore. Right. Can we bring new people into the door? And in the surface, that seems like a pretty easy question. Mm-hmm. But then when you start to say, well, who are new people? What mm-hmm. are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Are they similar but different? Mm-hmm. You know, new people are, mm-hmm. who are these new people? Right. And who what are do these they look new people, like? right? So one of the biggest things <clears throat> we learned through our work is about identifying that target audience. That's really, uh, people say, oh, who would you like to come in? Everyone says, well, everyone. You know, you're like, well, you know, not everyone. What do you mean when you say everyone? What would you like to change about your audience? So we know that neighborhoods are changing, cities are changing across America, demographics are shifting within our country. People want a more representative sample of the actual country in which we live to be part of the arts audience. That is not necessarily true for a lot of the benchmark arts. That is a result of, you know, declining arts education, the competition for culture, income, all these variables push against, you know, having automatically diverse audiences. And so I think organizations think about, one, the art form. Some say, okay, well, how might we change to bring these new people in? And they, in that, they really have to be specific about that target audience so they know what to offer or how even to create a language and repertoire that represents and reflects those communities. So we've seen everything. We've seen everything from age groups. Oh, I want more millennials to ethnic and like psychographic groups. Oh, we want more inclined people, people who need new work. But in any of those ranges, the more specific you can be, the more change is allowed to manifest within your organization and you're able to do things that are really directed and have some response that you can measure over time to see whether you're having any success or not. What are some of the questions that they are addressing and that you are partnering with them to get answers to? They've all chosen target audiences in the outset and had a range of activities that they would do in order to get those target audiences. So we started with the principle of new audiences. Can they get new audiences? They have done things like, uh, I have an opera house that needed younger people to come to opera, right? The age old question, Every, the, the audience is aging out of this, of this organization. How do we bring young people in? How are young people, are they familiar with the art form of opera at all? Have they experienced opera? Let's do some focus groups and market research. We learned that, well, I have to get dressed up to go to the opera or the opera is too long and I don't know the opera because it's, I don't understand the language. I don't know the story. And so they decided they'd try to do something about building one's palette for opera. And so they partnered with local chefs and restaurants in oh, their nice. area and created something called Opera Tastings, where, you know, you show up, it's a very social event. You show up for a couple of hours on a weekday evening, 
and you have tastings from a local restaurant or a hot chef in town that's paired with with a local beverage or wine company, whatever. But with that little meal, you also get a taste of opera. And the opera accompanies each course of the meal. And you have a, a sheet that kind of says, was this too dry? Was it, you know, was it saucy? <laughs> salty, was yeah. it salty? Yeah. Did you get that aura of sweetness from the soprano's voice? You know, and people think about and listen to just a taste of opera. But you, you get a wide range of opera, so you get to experience Italian, German, you know, English. And you're at a table socializing with people, so it doesn't feel formal. It's a very informal approach to opera. You learn about local chefs, so you feel like you're you're doing something that's really about where you live and represents where you live. But you come away with a connection of like opera and food, which maybe you never considered before, or the sauciness of opera, which you never considered before. And it makes you more curious about attending a main stage production there. So, you know, we've had projects like that that really think about how do we bring new people in and recognizing that perhaps the way to bring people in is to go outside of our organization and and not demand that people just come to you because you're there, mm-hmm. but that you go, you go to them and you you actually think about and participate in the world outside in order to make that connection. I want to ask a question because I think it's an important societal question Mm. and I'm asking it from sort of a position that I don't necessarily agree with Mm. but as we're talking about this there's an assumption that opera should be protected and opera Mm. should continue and opera Mm. needs to be part of the repertoire of our culture Mm -hmm. and yet you know we just said also though that the audience for opera is aging Mm -hmm. and not necessarily being replaced by Mm -hmm. new people Mm -hmm. and so why don't we accept or why wouldn't we want to accept that opera just becomes sort of part of almost a museum instead of an active kind of cultural event yeah i mean i think my my answer to these kinds of questions of what what about the art form is it dying off should we let it die off is Mostly around kind of what do we accept as the canon for these kinds of disciplines, right? So I recognize that opera is old. It has developed over time. Different kinds of people have done opera or forms of opera. What might the, the art form look like if it weren't truly considered like an only European Western ideal or notion of opera, right? What if we open the canon? And I think same for symphony, right? A lot for dance, ballet. You know, if you think about ballet, it's just supposed to look a certain way. The bodies are supposed to look a certain way. It's supposed to be accompanied by a certain type of music. But that's because we make these assumptions about the canon, right? And the canon is so narrow. And what I believe is that the canon is much wider and we have to think about inclusivity of the canon and what we what we respect as the canon and honor as the canon. And as that expansion begins to happen and, and a broader range of voices and versions of the art form are are put up and, and held up in as in the same way these are, you do see that reflected in audience. You do see people respond to that. And I think it changes the way 
we consider things like opera or consider classical music as we know it. But that's a huge shift, right? Because yes. we then have to go out and seek those things or be open to, you know, open to hearing different things and saying, yeah, that's opera too. Right. No, that should be opera. This is the case. We should yes. teach these yes. things. We should show these things. We should not have a Mozart festival every single year. Right. Maybe the next year we honor somebody else who doesn't look anything like Mozart, but has the same amount of like respect and viability and talent from their community as he did. You launched this program, Building Audiences for Sustainability, in April of 2015, so you're four years into it. I think it's really interesting. I, I know you said you do grants differently, and you start the grant with a question, mm -hmm. and I would put it as a problem to solve, mm -hmm. or a problem worth solving. But the relationship you have with your grantees mm -hmm. is quite different yes. than a more typical model. Right. To be a Wallace grantee, sometimes they joke and say it's, you know, it's a little bit of homework. <laughs> but you, we have a five-year relationship with our grantees. All our initiatives last about five years in search of, you know, some study around that question, the, the, the prompting question. So alongside the programmatic work, you get money for your project. You get kind of technical assistance providers through the life of the grant. Within building audiences, we've been doing things like cost-benefit analysis because, again, we're looking at kind of bottom line and the effect of these things on the bottom line. But alongside, there's an, an independent researcher who's studying things like the implementation of these projects. Did they work? Did they build audience? Did they keep their current audience? And then they'll do an outcome study about, you know, what was the final impact of all of this work? What questions do we have answers to the question about whether these approaches have this life outside of a grant-funded project? moving forward. And so all of our work at Wallace is constructed in that way. We're in it for the long haul. And for us, what happens is it allows us to build a credible body of knowledge for the field. We want to help the small number of grantees that we work with at that given time, but we also hope that that work with the grantees allows us to build a body of work that services the entire field. So we have everything from deep research reports and quantitative and qualitative analysis of a body of work. We have literature reviews of the sector, but we also have case studies. We look for things, we try to build tools that someone working in an organization can use that gives them practical guides on how to's to do the thing that we have been studying and, and that becomes useful and, and practical for people on the ground because we know that's important. So in a way, another way to look at this is even if you're not one of the small mm -hmm. number of people who get the grant, the benefit of the grant accrues to you because the information and, and the learning and then obviously the publication about it becomes available to anybody who is interested Correct. in the same process or the same question. Correct. And the, and the notion of it being independent means Wallace's subjectivity about the topic is not inserted into that document, right? You're using an academic kind of nonpartisan researcher who's observing and they're speaking from the truth of what they've, what they've seen and the, the research that they've done over time. And so it, again, it lends an an aura of credibility that I think people can trust. 
You know, a lot of arts leaders say they don't have time for reflection. They don't have time to sit in a space and really think about and consider the work that they're doing. And a lot of the work that we do with them provides fodder for that, provides a space for that, enables them to experiment and think very deeply about the work. And you see the shifts in in thinking, you know, maybe from the outset, they think, well, they say they're doing research, but I'm just going to do this project and get it over. And then they, they sit through some technical assistance with us and they say, oh, I have some honest brokers at my side. I have some trusted people who I can share my angst, my joys, my kind of like warts and all with about this process. And they're not judging me. They're actually just kind of listening and helping and troubleshooting. I feel like I have a better organization as a result. And that's really just deep space that you don't always get in because you're trying to manage everything day in, day out and make, you know, make sure the door is open. Well, what struck me about that, though, is there must be an incredible amount of trust Mm-hmm. Built the grant range was between a 1.5 million yes. and 28 million. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I've been with Wallace for a year, and I made a point of showing up to my grantees' places in their cities and experiencing the shows and their projects, and talking to their leaders and the people on the project team to one ground myself in the work and get a sense for what's happening, but also show respect and interest and curiosity around how that leader feels about it all and build trust between the two of us. And that has been vital to the process. One of our guiding principles is about continuous improvement. And we say if doing something doesn't leave you within like a higher state of confusion, (laughs) then you haven't really done anything at all. And so in the continuous improvement cycle, we're looking, we're trying to like do the thing, see if it needs tweaking, try it again. And we keep going in these cycles knowing that perfection won't be reached, but you'll get a little closer. You'll evolve a little as an organization or a leader or, you know, in, in a relationship with your community and it'll lead to a better outcome. So that's, that's what we're mm-hmm. there for. I think we recognize we're not trying to create a silver bullet in this question because I don't think one exists, but if we are helping to change and evolve the practice of benchmark arts institutions through this work, I think that would be a really positive outcome. A challenge for, especially I think in the performing arts, Mm -hmm. because it's a live experience, Mm -hmm. is how do you do that? Mm -hmm. How do you bring new ways of thinking, feeling, experiencing, performing, and also not cause your traditional audience and your traditional donors, cause them not to sort of either abandon you or call up the president of the board of directors Mm -hmm. and says Mm -hmm. that crazy Mm -hmm. executive director has Mm -hmm. ruined my, you know. Right. I think that scares people to bring in new things. Yes. I mean, I think that that discomfort, people think that, that that is eternal when that happens. Some of our organizations have experienced it. It's a growing pain for about a year or two, and then it begins to recede. And then those those older participants see the, the kind of connection that organization is making with the community, the kind of reputation that is advancing positively as a result. And they reconsider their 
kind of like brush off or distancing from the organization just because it played something that wasn't to their taste. And they actually become more inclined to participate in those new things. Hopefully, you know, and some some stay, some go and they they go away and they never come back. But I think to to ride on that coattail and only cater to that small percentage, small percentage, high dollar, right? I will firmly acknowledge that. But small percentage of audience, while the entire world is shifting around you, is you're not doing your your organization a service by by focusing on that. So I grew up in New York, in Brooklyn to be exact, the best borough of the city, (laughs) and always have a memory of being in the arts. I danced ballet for a long time. I went to museums with my mother and my grandmother. I went to Broadway with my father and kind of grew up as a kid that just liked creative, just needed and had and loved creative outlets. So as I matured and thought about a career path, I was a liberal arts kind of history major and went to a place where the natural path of these, you know, kind of great New England schools is that you go off, you become an investment banker or consultant, and that's what you do. And I just had no interest. And um, a neighbor came to me and said, hey, there's this job at the Brooklyn Children's Museum. They have a new ED. She really needs someone to help her. And I thought, oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah, I'll apply to that. I can be back home. And I had this memory of like going to the Brooklyn Children's Museum as a child and thought, yeah, this could be really cool. And so started a life in museums, stayed on the kind of the administrative side, doing government affairs and capital projects and advocacy work and thought to myself, you see all the inner workings, you see how boards operate, you see the money coming in from private and public sources and just started becoming a little obsessed with this idea of like capitalization and the resource flow, but really wanted to just had a lot of curiosity about what's this relationship between money and the arts and people? What does it look like? And had the chance, the first professional philanthropic opportunity or space was with a local foundation, the New York Women's Foundation, where I sat on the allocations committee and we were professional women who were the basically the grant managers for their fund. And we went out and did site visits and visited with grassroots organizations all over the city who were in service to women and girls. And I thought, oh, you know, the bug kind of hit me. And I said, oh, philanthropy, this is really about relationships and seeing the potential in people and wanting to resource that potential and see that growth and understanding that strength lies everywhere. Where can I go to do this? And philanthropy is a wonky kind of industry. Mm -hmm. You don't have a natural path there. You don't say, I want to be a foundation officer. And they say, oh, take these three courses. And then you can, every foundation is waiting for you to join. But as my luck would have it, I was in graduate school in something called National Urban Fellows doing a master's in public administration that was targeted for women and people of color who were interested in public service. And I thought, okay, public service, right? And philanthropy is part of that public service. And I ended up during my service in grad school working with the Knight Foundation down in Miami. And working at night allowed me to see a range of communities, build strategy, 
understand like the inner workings of philanthropy be a part of that movement and then Knight is very passionate about the arts as well and so really got dug my heels in and learned and worked and just and just really grounded myself in this industry and next thing I knew it was 10 years wow (laughs) and so that's my path it's it zigs and it zags but I'm very proud of that kind of curviness to it because I don't think I would have built a, a portfolio of life for myself that taught me how to advocate, how to see, how to invest in potential, how to be that potential, how to lead, how to develop a voice, and, and also through all of that, just be in service to community. From my view now, it's about, okay, we're here together. I see the strength in you and the work that you've done in community that for whatever reason hasn't been resourced in the way that it needs to. I have resources. How do we work together to make this happen? Right. Right. And like, how do I then like shift this? How do I create this power over here or like acknowledge this power over here in a way that it hasn't been acknowledged? How do I build this assortment of people together who can be in conversation to help move an entire sector move forward. So it's very proactive, it, and it goes back to those important questions. What happens if we do it this way? Right. What happens if we say the money isn't the most important thing, mm-hmm. and the partnership is? Right. And what happens when we say we don't have the answer? You might, and we're trusting you to work towards an answer. It doesn't have to be a hard answer, but just kind of get us closer to an answer. A lot of places say, well, we have the answer and we just need, to, here's money for you to just do it and tell me how you spent the money. Right. We say we actually don't have an answer to this and we need your help. Right. If you, what do you need to help us? Fantastic. I want to thank you so much. Thank you. For this being has been here. such a pleasure. This is my first podcast, I think. Uh, we have been enjoying a conversation together, Bahia Ramos and I. Thank you so much. I'm really excited for the work you do here as well. So, congratulations. Thank you. Yes, of course. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.